0: listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit Brockportfirstbaptist.org. A reading from Luke chapter 3 verses 23 through 38. The Ancestors of Jesus. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. He was a son, as was thought, of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Matthat, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Jani, son of Joseph, son of Mattathias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Asli, son of Nagai, son of Mahath, son of Mattathias, son of Simeon, son of Jozek, son of Jodah, son of Jonan, son of Risa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, son of Neri, son of Melchi, son of Adai, son of Qasem, son of Elmadam, son of Ur, son of Joshua, son of Eleazar, son of Jorim, son of Mattath, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Malia, son of Mena, son of Mattathah, son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, Son of Boaz, son of Salah, son of Nashon, son of Aminadab, son of Admin, son of Arni, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Serug, son of Reu son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalel, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God.
1: Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you, Martha. I was going to have you all clap. You should all clap for yourselves for, for hearing that, too. That was incredible. <clears throat> and, like, I really, I feel like I have to apologize to Martha. Like, every time you read, there's these crazy names in it. And then this week, it's, that's all that was in it. So you, that was fantastic, though. Um, thank you for that. <clears throat> so I know uh, probably at least half of you are thinking... Something to the effect of, like, great. So I got up early, I brushed off my car, I braved the cold weather and the wind to come hear a sermon on a genealogy. Anybody, is anybody there? Anybody there right now? A few of you, not want to admit it? Yeah, these, these genealogies we find in scripture are not exactly stimulating reading. Uh, if we're honest, this is the stuff we usually skip over when we read the Bible, Uh, As soon as you get to like, this guy was the son of this guy was the son of this guy, it's like, okay, I can go to the next paragraph, I get it. And it's because we assume that genealogies are boring, but here's the thing, I don't actually think you find genealogies quite as boring as you may think you do, and there's one reason for that. Ancestry.com, that's right, Ancestry.com. Ancestry.com. If you're not familiar with this service, Ancestry.com is a company that helps people research their genealogies. They have access to over 10 billion historical records, which is crazy and a little scary. Um, They've sold over 14 million DNA kits, and their profits hover around $900 million per year. And you were worried about Google, right? Yeah, genealogies are big business. Our culture is kind of obsessed with this stuff at the moment. We want to know where we came from. We want to know who our families are. It makes a difference to know that your ancestors came over on the Mayflower or that your great-grandmother was a nurse in World War I. That stuff tells us something. It gives us a sense of roots. It gives us a sense of purpose. It tells us something about our identity. And the genealogy of Jesus works just like that. This is a statement about who Jesus is. It's about Jesus' identity. Now, we find two genealogies of Jesus in the Bible. One in the Gospel of Luke, another in the Gospel of Matthew. And they're pretty different. They're organized differently. Uh, they're different lengths. And they have a lot of different names. But before you get freaked out at that seeming Uh, inconsistency, there are some explanations for why these genealogies differ. One thing that's important to keep in mind is that we're dealing with a smaller community of people. The gene pool might not be quite as deep as we're used to, if you know what I mean. My mom's side of the family, the, the Fugates, they all come from Kentucky. They've lived in Kentucky for over 200 years. Uh, The family there in Kentucky, the Fugate clan, all lives in this one uh, valley surrounded by high mountains. You don't get a lot of visitors, not many people leave, everyone's related. And imagine my terror when I was 14 years old and I went to a family reunion and looked at my mom's family tree and realized pretty quickly that it was more of a family circle. (laughs) Like, you did not have to go back that far, like three, four generations before the tree would kind of curve back in on itself. Kind of gross. All that to say, though, that in these smaller, interrelated communities, like what Jesus would have come from, you can take multiple paths through a family tree. There can be more than one way to trace this. So that's one possibility for what's going on here. Another theory is that Matthew gives us Joseph's genealogy, while Luke gives us Mary's. Now, that kind of makes sense. Mary's like the main character of the opening chapters of Luke. And when Joseph is mentioned, it's really more of a parenthetical reference. Like, the mention is kind of pointing out that Jesus didn't really come from Joseph. He was the son, as was thought, of Joseph, son of Heli. And there are also some traditions in the early church that actually identify Heli as Mary's father, not Joseph's. In Matthew's genealogy, Joseph's father is called Mathen. So it's reasonable to think that Luke could be giving us Mary's side of the family. That's a possibility. But as fascinating as all these theories are, I don't really think it matters that much that these two genealogies don't quite line up. Because remember the point of a genealogy. This is a statement about Jesus' identity. Matthew and Luke didn't send away for DNA kits. All right, they didn't have billions and billions of historical records that they could search through back then. They're making a statement about who Jesus is. And there are even hints in both genealogies that Matthew and Luke are up to something pretty different. Matthew's genealogy, which you can actually find in Matthew chapter 1, it begins with Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And then it moves forward in time to Jesus. Luke's genealogy, by contrast, starts with Jesus and moves backwards through time, past Abraham, stretching all the way back to Adam, son of God, which is fascinating. We're going to say more about that in a minute. That's not the only clue we have, though, that these two authors are giving us something very different. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. And so he not only begins his genealogy with Abraham, He traces Jesus' lineage through the kings of Israel. King David, King Solomon, all those other kings we read about in the Old Testament. He's making the point that Jesus is the promised king. The one who's come to deliver Israel and to rule forever. Now Luke's genealogy also includes King David. But Luke traces Jesus' line through David's son, Nathan, who was never king and about whom we know almost nothing. In fact, the whole first half of Luke's genealogy, all the names between Joseph and David, are a bunch of nobodies. We don't know anything about most of these people. Luke doesn't even point out that David was a king. In Matthew's genealogy, it's very explicit. It says, King David. But for Luke, the greatest king in Israel's history it's just one name in a list of many. What is Luke trying to tell us? Why trace the Messiah's family tree through a bunch of nobodies and take it all the way back to Adam, son of God? Well, there are at least three reasons for this that we're going to look at, and the first is actually pretty simple. Tracing Jesus' ancestry back to God fits really nicely with Luke's narrative. In context, it makes perfect sense. The story just before this one, which we looked at two weeks ago now, was the baptism of Jesus. And if you remember, Jesus comes up out of the water, the spirit descends like a dove, the heavens open, and God declares, this is my son. Right after that, we get this genealogy, tracing Jesus all the way back to God, showing us kinda one way in which Jesus is God's son. The story right after this one, Jesus is led out in the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights and where he's tempted by the devil. And with each temptation, the devil says, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, turn these rocks into bread and eat. If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself from the top of the temple and God will save you. The devil's very interested in Jesus' identity as well. These tests cast doubt on Jesus' divine sonship, but Jesus passes the tests. He resists those lies, and we have the genealogy right here showing us that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. So that's one reason. But another reason Luke traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam is that Luke is presenting Jesus as the new Adam. Now this is an idea that gets super abstract very quickly, but it's actually something we find a lot of in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings. The people who lived at the time of Jesus, they viewed Adam as more than just a man. He was more than just a historical person. Adam was a template. Adam was a way of being, human in the world. Adam is a stand-in for every single one of us, for humanity as a whole. And that's a symbol of humanity separated from God. But Jesus reverses the curse of Adam and gives us a new template, a new way of being human. There's the way of Adam, which leads to separation from God and death, and then there's the way of Jesus, which leads to union with God and life. Or as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians, which will be on the screen Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. That's basically the gospel right there in a nutshell. Jesus is the new Adam who replaces sin and death with resurrection and life so that we can become one with God, which is amazing. And as awesome and amazing and vital as those first two reasons are for tracing this genealogy all the way back to Adam, son of God, there's actually a third reason. And I want to focus on that. I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about this possibility Luke doing something a little bit more radical. By tracing Jesus' ancestry back to Adam, Luke is saying that Jesus' lordship, his saving work, his dominion as king and messiah, applies to everyone. Jesus is not only the king and savior of his own people, the Jewish people, he's the king and savior of all people. Now that does not sound all that surprising today, but at the time this was written, that was a radical new idea. The biggest controversy in the early church by far was the inclusion of Gentiles, that's non-Jews. That was the big debate of the day. Can Gentiles follow Jesus too? Remember that Christianity, our religion, started as a sect within Judaism. And so the first Christians were Jews, and when Gentiles started following Jesus, that was a scandal. There was a big debate over how the church should handle that. You can actually read about this debate in Acts 15. On one side you have the Judaizers. These were Jewish Christians who believed that in order to follow Jesus, a Gentile first had to become Jewish. And that wasn't like just switching churches. It's not like today, where one day you can go to the Baptist church, next day you can go to the Methodist church. It was a little bit more involved than that. Religion permeated every element of life and culture and society. For a Gentile to become Jewish meant getting circumcised, dressing differently, eating differently. There were entire food groups you had to avoid. You had to observe different holidays, different feasts. There were different standards of cleanliness. You wouldn't be able to associate with certain Gentile friends and family members in quite the same way for fear of becoming unclean. It was a total shift. And remember that Luke is the only Gentile author we know of in the New Testament. There were probably people in Luke's church who believed he didn't belong people who thought he was unclean, that Luke was a sinner, that he couldn't be a real Jesus follower because he belonged to the wrong religion. Luke's very inclusion in the church was a matter of controversy. And so what does Luke do when he gives us his picture of Jesus, his rendering of Jesus' identity? Oops, just knocked it. Well, Luke traces Jesus' genealogy through a bunch of nobodies, reminding us that Jesus came for everyone. He didn't just come to save the Jews or any other specific people group. He came for everybody. Jesus was a child of Adam, like every single one of us. The Son of God who secures our adoption into God's family. How do you understand the identity of Jesus? And how does that impact the way you view and interact with the world? Do you have a view of Jesus that draws lines and erects walls? Or is your Jesus a savior that tears walls down? A savior that pushes you to embrace those who are different from you, even those who maybe belong to another religion, or who maybe other people think, are unclean or sinners so i lived in los angeles for a long time and i want to tell you about one of my favorite spots in la and julius is where i'm going to take over with this because i need to see these slides while i go through them i want to tell you about one of my favorite spots in la to kind of drive this home this is los angeles cathedral the cathedral of our lady of the angels I'm getting a bad glare on the screen, so I can't see it that well. It is a massive Roman Catholic church right in downtown L.A. It's absolutely gorgeous. It was opened in 2002. It's uh, very modern, very abstract looking. Um, Here's another angle. There's actually a fountain outside the place. It's kind of to the side of the fountain there. There's a wall. I couldn't find a good picture of it. It has the verse. I believe it's the greatest commandment when Jesus says to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It has it etched on that wall in every known language. Just rows and rows of that verse. And then in the entrance, which is where everyone's walking up to, there's this this statue. It's supposed to be Our Lady of the Angels. One thing you notice with this statue, you can't really place the ethnicity. It's kind of a blend. This woman It could be depicting an African woman, an Asian woman, Latino, Eastern European. You can't really tell. This is a church that is built and designed with the idea that Jesus came for everyone. I want to show you some more pictures from the inside. This is the inside of the church. It's pretty magnificent, as most cathedrals are. Very modern and magnificent, but still beautiful. You see these, like, big pictures on the wall, like those people standing there. Those are actually these, they're massive tapestries, just to give you a sense of how big they are. And those are pictures of various saints, of Christians throughout the centuries. And they're depicted in different ages, different races. Um, and so like when you're sitting in the church, you're actually sitting in the history of the church is like the idea there. It's really, this is why it's one of my favorite places, it's really amazing. And then the layout of the church is interesting. Um, this, is, this is not a map of this church. I couldn't find a good one. But this is like your standard cathedral map, which um, LA Cathedral follows. If you've ever been in a cathedral, you notice it's laid out like a cross. Our Catholic friends really like to display their theology in their architecture. We do, too. We're just not as cognizant of it. But um, kind of the long bottom bar of the cross where letters B, D, A, C are, that's where the congregation sits. Okay, that's where like the lay people sit. It's like this part of the church. Then in the center you have the altar where the priests sit. At the top you have uh, the choir. But then you get those those two little wings. On this map it's F-E and H-G. Different churches, those have different reasons. Different people sit there. They'll be used for different things. At LA Cathedral, though, the one wing, the wing on the left, that's where the leaders of the church sit that's where like deacons and their spouses that's where they'll sit and i have a a picture that kind of captures it it's the pews from this angle that are off to the right they have a a a front row seat to the altar and everything that's going on up there but the other side uh too far f and e on this map or maybe h and g on this map. the other side across the altar that section is reserved for anyone who comes to the church who is not a christian if you come and you're not part of the church, in some contexts, even if you come and you're a Protestant, you get a seat of honor, front row looking over everything that's going on up front with the altar, right across from all the leaders of the church. LA Cathedral, since it opened in 2002, has become like a primary spot in Los Angeles for like interreligious dialogue, interfaith efforts, Uh, reconciliation between Protestants and Catholics, Jews and Christians, Muslims and Christians. When there are uh, acts of violence against religious communities, minority communities, LA Cathedral is a place where people come for like combined services to talk about peace and reconciliation and how they move forward. And then most churches have a cornerstone. I actually don't know if we have one. Jim, do you know if we have a cornerstone? There's there's usually like, is it out there somewhere? There's, it's outside, it's out on this wall? Okay, I'll have to go look. It's a stone in the church. It usually determines the layout of the entire structure. It usually has a date on it and a Bible verse. The Bible verse here is Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And that's all peoples. Not just Christians, not just Catholics, not just people we like and people who are like us, but all people. That's radical inclusion. That's a church that's designed to show that Jesus pushes us to overcome barriers. Who's in and who's out? Who's an insider and who's an outsider? Who belongs and who doesn't? These are questions that were really important in the early church. They're questions many people still ask today. And they're questions we are going to be bombarded with as we travel through Luke's gospel together. In this gospel, Jesus is going to eat with all the wrong people. He's going to associate with all the wrong people. It's going to drive the religious folks nuts. He's going to share meals with sinners outsiders. He's going to praise the faith of a pagan Roman centurion. He's even going to tell a parable about a Samaritan. That was someone from another religion who kept God's law more faithfully than a priest and a Levite. Who do we welcome in church and who do we struggle to include? Who do we struggle to include in our own lives and our own circle of friends? Does your identity rooted in Jesus push you to welcome and engage with people who are different? Or does it put up a wall? Has it turned you inward? May we accept the challenge of Luke's gospel as we journey through it together. May we learn to practice the same sort of radical inclusion that Jesus embodied so perfectly. And may we follow in the path of Jesus the Messiah who is the son of Adam the son of God
0: Amen Thanks for listening If you enjoyed what you heard please be sure to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist on Twitter at BrockportFB and on our website brockportfirstbaptist.org Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.